All right, uh, I do invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 24. Uh, that was quite a sermon there uh, in and of itself. Uh, but we want to look at Genesis chapter 24. And as I said, this is the longest chapter uh, in the book. I, I've tried to uh, work on the sermon to shorten it a bit. Uh, I, I will confess to you, um, and hopefully this is not discouraging, I have 10 pages of notes here today, uh, so sometimes I can uh, just, uh, you know, <clears throat> edit out as I go along, and so I'm trusting and asking the Lord to help me do that as we go along. Genesis chapter 24, uh, as we come to this part in Genesis, to <clears throat> the end of Abraham's story, we come to the final act. I think the final act goes from Genesis 22 and verse 20 through the middle of Genesis 25. This final act is framed by genealogies and death reports. Uh, perhaps you remember this from a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we considered the death report of Sarah, and we learned a, a proper view of God by watching Abraham negotiate a burial plot for Sarah. Perhaps you remember that. In, and in that challenging moment, Abraham's faith shines brightly. At the point that for the Christian follower of Jesus Christ, the grave might be one of the, the brightest moments where our faith can shine for the Lord. How Abraham handled the loss demonstrates his belief that God would come through on his promises for the promised land that he had given or said he would give to Abraham. Next week, uh, we're going to consider the death report of Abraham. I don't want to give that away, but Abraham does die. Um, perhaps you've noticed that. Um, we're going to consider the death report of Abraham and the genealogy around his death. This week, we're going to look at the high point between the death reports, between the death of Abraham and the death of Sarah, and that is the marriage of Isaac in Genesis chapter 24. And so within this text, we'll consider an ancient love story. We've all heard of great love stories before. Perhaps you even have one yourself. I would love to tell you mine, but uh, if I were, and I'm not going to today, uh, one thing I would not emphasize would be the location of where I asked Carissa to marry me. Let's just say mistakes were made uh, <laughs> uh, that day and that location. You can ask her about it later. When you think of a great love story, perhaps you think of the tragic love story of Romeo and Juliet that ends with both of them joining each other in death. Or maybe you like more of a happy story, so you think of something like Cinderella, who overcomes some wicked stepsisters to find true love in Prince Charming. Today we're going to consider a true, ancient, biblical love story of Isaac and Rebekah. And in this story, I think we'll see God at work behind the details in some of the most vulnerable moments in the lives of the patriarchs. That's the, the glory of this sermon will be pointing to how God works in these vulnerable moments for his own glory. This story unfolds in four stages, and uh, uh, so I have four points to the outline. We're just going to go through the story, read through it quickly, and I'll make comments as we go. The first stage, it starts with an oath in Canaan uh, in verses 1 through 9. So look down in your Bible, verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, 
Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you come? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand in the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him, concerning this matter. So it all starts with an oath in Canaan. That's point one here in the, the narrative, the first stage. This starts with an elderly Abraham insisting that his most faithful servant take an oath and he will find a suitable wife for Isaac. It seems for some reason that perhaps Abraham's health is declining some way or another. Perhaps he thinks he's going to die now, uh, if you do the math, Abraham will live 30 or 35 years after this. But it seems as if there's something going on. He can't go himself, and so he sends this faithful servant. And so his unnamed servant then becomes the main character throughout the rest of the story. More specifically, what Abraham does here is he insists that the servant find a wife for Isaac from among his own people back in Haran, which is hundreds of miles away. With this challenge that he gives in verses 1 through 9, there are two things that he absolutely forbids this unnamed servant from allowing to happen. First, uh, he must not let Isaac go back to Haran. And second, he must not take a wife from the Canaanite people for his son Isaac. As we look at these two things that he forbids, I think it's good to stop and ask, why would he forbid these things? First, you know, we don't exactly know why he wouldn't let Isaac go back for himself to get his own bride. You know, for every man, young man in the room, you'd like to have some say, right, in uh, who your bride would be. We don't know why he won't let Isaac go back. Perhaps he's fearful that if Isaac goes back to Haran, he'll never come back. Abraham has just experienced the loss of Sarah, his wife, and it would be unthinkable for him to also lose Isaac, to have him go back to Haran at this time and never return. But it's also not acceptable for Isaac to find a wife from the Canaanite or from among the Canaanites. As we come to this part in the story, a modern reader's sensibilities might be struck a little bit here. This might startle us in our world today. Why won't he let Isaac marry someone from a different ethnicity? And, and we can have legitimate questions. Is this like a type of racism? Or, you know, what is going on in this passage? Is this prejudice? Well, the answer to that question is no. Um, and I, I think later biblical texts help us understand what was in the heart of Abraham and his request here. Okay, do you remember later on, there's a king of Israel by the name of Solomon who had many wives. Remember this? 
Okay. And one of the things you learn that the scripture actually reveals about Solomon and his many wives from many different foreign lands is the gravest of consequences for him was that those wives eventually turned his heart toward other gods. Toward other gods. Abraham has already seen how some of the cities around him, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around those two did not look to God, Yahweh, as their God. They looked to strange gods, pagan gods, and they followed after their own sorts of sins. He's just heard in Genesis chapter 15, God tells him that there's coming a day when the Amorite people, and the Amorite people might be almost a way to synonymously refer to the Canaanites, but he's, God prophesies in Genesis 15 that there's coming a day hundreds of years from now when God will come and he will destroy the Amorite people because they're not following after him. And so Abraham won't let his son marry someone who has no desire to follow Yahweh, to follow God. In the New Testament, it's actually interesting to me that later on the Apostle Paul says to new covenant believers in Jesus Christ, that we are to only marry those who are in the Lord. That's how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. and 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So having said all this, the servant is concerned uh, then, after giving his charge, that a young woman from so far away will not be willing to come back with him to Canaan. And that's where Abraham gives him a reassurance. Uh, look again in your Bible at verse 7. Okay, so Genesis 24, verse 7, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. Abraham knows God is going to provide. He's already interacted with God. He's already interacted with the angel of the Lord. He knows this is nothing for God. It's going to happen. Okay, so the servant's question allows Abraham to demonstrate his faith. To ease the servant's anxiety, however, just after this, he gives one little caveat. He says, okay, if this woman won't come back with you, then you're released from your oath of mine. And so with all these clarifications and caveats in place, the servant finally agrees. Verses 1 through 9 are about an oath in Canaan. Okay, so at verse, verse 2, Abraham says, I want you to take an oath. I want you to put your hand under my thigh and, and swear to God that you will do this. And in verse 9, the servant finally agrees to do it. That's stage 1, an oath in Canaan. That leads to stage 2, and uh, the second point I would call a prayer at a well. A prayer at a well. Um, this stage starts with a journey in verses 10 and 11 where the servant starts going there. So look down in your Bible at verse 10. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his masters. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women would go to draw water. Here the servant takes the journey, 
with all sorts of choice gifts and camels. No doubt these luxury items are going to be a part of the bride price if the servant is successful. This journey looks like it just happens quickly, right? That's the way it's narrated here, but we know just from geography that this journey would take at least three or four weeks. And so he finally arrives at the right destination. The servant parks his camels out by a well outside the city of Haran. And he goes to the Lord in prayer. It's the next thing he does. Look in your Bible, verse 12. And he said, and the rest of verses 12 through 14 are in prayer. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and and, and who shall say, drink and I will make, or I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. All right, so you got to love the impulse of this unnamed servant, right? He goes to the Lord in prayer at such an important moment. He needs God to intervene. And he requests God to demonstrate his covenant loyalty to Abraham, and he asks God to grant him success, he says, today. I was really struck with the immediacy of his request. I mean, just got in there, parked the camels. God, help me today. I was also impressed with the precision of the prayer request. Okay, now, I think sometimes we have to be careful in the way we, we dictate things for God. Have you ever done that before in prayer? Lord, if this is your will, if you could do this and this and this and this and this all today. Okay, well, maybe God doesn't always have to answer like he does here. The servant asked God to do something very specific, to have a woman offer water to him and to his camels. But even before the prayer is finished, what we learn is God is working behind the scenes of the story to answer this prayer. Look with me at verses 15 through 25. Before he had finished speaking, he's praying, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all its camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter are you? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. This part of the story here involves two characters, Rebekah and the unnamed servant. 
Rebecca comes up to the well with a water jar on her shoulder, and the girl's beauty immediately strikes this old servant, so much so that he runs to her and he says, please give me a little water from your jar. Give me a little sip of water. Very cordial here, not asking too much to see what God will do. And then that's when God makes it clear that this first woman is actually the one that's going to be for Isaac. Other love stories that kind of exhaust all of the potential candidates. You got all the wicked stepsisters, they all have to have their chance. And then comes the the lowly looking one, or whatever. But in, in this true biblical story, before he's even done praying, an attractive young woman comes up, And she fulfills the test. She responds by giving the servant water and then suggests that she will draw water for all of his camels, too, which is no small task, by the way. I actually had to do research about camels. I don't know much about camels. This week I was doing some research about camels. Actually, some estimates regarding camels camels that they can drink 15 gallons of water in 10 minutes. It's pretty impressive, 15 gallons in 10 minutes. And so this woman, with her little three to five gallon jar, is going to have to take several trips down into the well and back up to the trough to fill it for these camels, to water 10 camels, might take 30 to 50 trips, according to my math. No doubt it would have at least taken her an hour or two, right? I'm sure Rebecca would have been quite exhausted and um, perhaps a little bit perturbed by this. For as she's doing all of the work, you notice this in the text? The servant is simply watching her I don't know if it's my imagination, but perhaps this this, uh, Rebecca thinks, this is the rudest man I've ever met in my life. Doing all this work, and he's just watching. But we notice that Rebecca is not just beautiful, she's thoughtful in this text, she's a hard worker. And Moses stresses that by all of the verbs in this text. She, she doesn't say much in this text, but if you notice all the things she does, she went down, she filled, she came up, she let down, she gave, she quickly emptied, she ran, and she drew again. She's a humble servant. And then the servant learns, not only is she beautiful and uh, humble and a servant, she also qualifies. She is related, she is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. In our context, we might think gross, uh, marrying, intermarrying, someone that close, but uh, this was exactly the sort of thing that Abraham was looking for. So, uh, with this in mind, uh, all of this overwhelms the servant, and he responds in a very good way. Look at verse 26 through 28, he responds with worship. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forgotten his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way 
to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. In this worship, we learn more of the servant's attitude about God. God has not only been faithful to Abraham, he led this servant when he was in the way, when he was on the path. God led him. This is where I think we can begin to see one of Moses' main points in the story, and that, that is that nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing. God controls the particulars of the servant's life on the way so that he immediately finds the one who passes the test. So as we're reading this part of the story, it's obvious to the reader so far, isn't it? It's like, okay, this is the one. And it's obvious to the servant. He falls and worships. That leaves us with the question, what will her family say? What will her family say? And so that's where we, we go next. That leads us to stage three of this ancient love story, a negotiation at, in Rebecca's home. Uh, and so most of this stage of the love story uh, uh, occurs in Rebecca's home over the course of two days. And it goes from verses 29 through 61. And for most of this, I'm just going to read through it and make a few comments to make sure we understand it. Okay, but as we go through these two days together, I think we'll again see God's sovereign care and direction. On day one, it all starts uh, in verses 29 through 31 with a, a new character being introduced by the name of Laban. Look in your Bible at verse 29. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. Here we come across Laban. He is not only the main actor in this story, he's going to be a main character in some stories later on in Genesis as well. And we're going to learn not to really like him very much, I don't think. Rebecca runs to her household and he tells them everything that happened at the well, so Laban runs. You're looking at verses 28 and 29, uh, the verbs that are used here. Rebecca runs, Laban runs. Everything's so exciting, everyone's running. Yet we find in verse 30 what motivates Laban to run. Why does he sprint there? Says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets. Laban is not motivated by the opportunity for marriage with such a close family member. He's not looking forward to see the servant of his um, brother's, um, of his father's brother, I should say. That's not what motivates him. What motivates him is greed. He's motivated by what he can get out of this whole exchange. This picture of Laban kind of foreshadows what he'll later desire with Jacob in Genesis. And so Laban here, he invites the unnamed servant to come home, and the servant retells him what has happened. 
Uh, that's what happens in verses 32 through 49. So I'm just going to read this. This is just retelling a little bit. It says, So the man came to the house and unharnished the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. Verse 34. Look down your Bible. It says, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master whom she, when she was old, and to him he was given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife from my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Verse 42. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her uh, be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. <clears throat> That's a long section. He retells what's going on here. Servant begins here by taking care of all of his animals and his men, but he refuses to eat himself until he's allowed to say what he needs to say. Do you notice how he identifies himself? He doesn't say, I am, you know, the name, whatever his name is. He says, I'm Abraham's servant. As far as we know, this servant does not identify himself by name. His name is not really important to him. What's important to him is his connect, connection to his master Abraham. Uh, just to make a small application here, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, I think uh, in some ways we can relate to this very well. It's not our name or identity that matters. All that matters is that we are the servants of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you want to find a good example of that found in Scripture, I was just thinking this morning of the first verse of James. Here, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, does not introduce himself as, the, the, I'm the brother of Jesus, listen to my epistle. He says, no, I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. Our identities are just not that important either. But let's look at this unnamed servant. Abraham's unnamed servant tells the story 
He gives all honor and glory to Yahweh, Abraham's God. And in telling this, there was a part of it that really stuck out to me. I don't have the time to look at all of this in detail, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was his retelling in verse 44 and verse 46. Verse 44, the servant explains that he prayed silently. So it's not like the woman could overhear what he was praying. Like Rebecca could have heard it. Oh, I want to be that woman. I'm going to say that line. He's praying silently. He prays these words, drink and I will draw for your camels also. That's what he asked for the woman to say, drink and I will draw for your camels also. And in verse 46, he explains what Rebecca said. She said, drink and I will give your camels drink also. So she said verbatim what the servant had suggested. I'm sure that as he's retelling this part of the story, it must have sent chills down the spine of Laban and those who were there. So how will her family respond? Look at verse 50 and verse 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before her. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So at first blush, as I'm kind of looking at this, it just seems to me that Laban, her brother, and her father, Bethel, are just overwhelmed by the story. They see all of this is a testimony tribute that there is a God and he's at work. I liked how one commentator this week, uh, he, he said it, uh, his name is Victor Hamilton, and he, he wrote this. He said, because Yahweh has made this decision, Laban no longer has the privilege of making his own decision." It's just obvious, right? We use the phrase, that match was made in heaven. All right, here you got Bethuel and Laban, and they're just like, this is from God. So, they impulsively comply. Let her be the wife of your master's son. To which the servant responds with gratitude in verse 52. Look at verse 52. When Abram's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. This is like the end of day one still. What a day, right? He responds impulsively with worship again. It's what he does when God comes through like this. And then he starts giving out gifts to everyone, to Laban and to Rebekah's mother and to those who are around. And then he finally eats and drinks and they all go to sleep. What a good day. Ever had a good day before? This is a good day. I wonder what's going to happen on the next day. Will it be as good? you're like me, I'm a pessimist, right? When I have a really good day, I'm like, oh no, what's going to happen tomorrow? All kinds of stuff are going to come at me. What's going to happen here? Something going to go wrong? Look with me at the beginning of day two, in the middle of verse 54. It says, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me. 
since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. The servant demands to leave at the beginning of day two. He's like really moving things along quickly here, isn't he? I mean, how would you respond as a father or mother? What, you're leaving? What are you loading up Rebecca on the camel for? Give us some more time. Give us at least 10 days. Maybe rightfully so, they're asking. However, Laban's going to use his strategy later on. Okay? And it's going to be more than 10 days. It's going to be 7 or 14 years later on. The servant who had been gracious before demands here. He says, do not delay me. Send me away that I may go to my master. And that's when we see that they finally decide to ask Rebecca. What she thinks. I mean, imagine that. Like, that would be a good thing to do in most cases, right? So look down your Bible, verse 57. Let's see what Rebecca says. They said, let us call the one young woman and ask her. So they have this conflict. They don't want to let her go. Let us ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Girls, what would you do? Would you go? Well, maybe she thinks it's, it's going to be better for her. She won't have to do all this like watering of the camel stuff. <laughs> we don't know why she's willing, but she is. That's how God works. He's working in everyone's heart in this situation. He's working through all the details all the personal intersection of human lives behind the scenes, preparing her as well. Perhaps she has come to believe in the God of Abraham as the servant has told him all about him and how he's blessed Abraham. It's actually interesting. The, the Hebrew verb here translated, I will go, could actually be translated a little bit more strongly. It could be translated, I want to go. I want to go. Expressing, ex expressing her strong wish in this situation. Before we leave this part, I just want you to know that in the ancient world, I hope you know this, that these sort of arranged marriages were pretty common. In some parts of the world today, they still are. What is not common is necessarily getting consent from the young woman to be a part of this. But I think it makes this ancient love story even more romantic. Right? She desires to go. She wants to be a part of this. And she is ready to go and find her husband one day after finding out about him. So she says her goodbyes and she departs. Look at me at verse 59. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offsprings possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young woman rose and rode on camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. For the sake of time, I said I was going to you know, plow through some things. I'll just say, Rebecca's family speaks better than they even know. Look at Genesis 22, verse 17 for just a moment. You remember Abraham and Isaac and, and up on Mount Moriah and God's you know, he's going to offer Isaac, and then the angel of the Lord stops him. And after that, the angel of the Lord gives a blessing promise to Abraham. Look, 
look at verse 17. Genesis 22, 17. It says, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the stand that is on the seashore. Now pay attention here. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is a promise of the angel of the Lord to Abraham. Your offspring will possess the gate of your enemies. Okay, now move forward again to Genesis 24 and verse 60. The last part of that verse, verse 60. May become thousands of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate them. They're saying the exact same thing that the angel of the Lord had promised. This is their wish for a while. You, you can see God is working out his blessing on Abraham and his descendants. And so Rebekah and the servant head back to Canaan to find Isaac. This comes to our final stage, a wedding in Canaan, verses 60 through, through 67. And so what story doesn't have, what love story doesn't have a wedding, right? So look there in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil, covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. As a fitting end to this love story, we find out what Isaac is doing when they come. He is out in a field meditating. This, I think, is an important point that Moses gives us. It shows that God is working in everyone's heart to prepare them. Isaac uh, is no exception. No doubt it's, it's been perhaps you know, two months or so since he's heard from the servant. He doesn't know how it's going. He doesn't know what he's going to bring back, if he's going to bring back anything. But he's meditating out in a field. That's when the scene shifts to Rebecca. And what the text says about her is quite interesting. The ESV uh, translation, English translation I'm using, says she dismounted the camel. And that's actually a pretty generous translation. For the Hebrew word that's used here is a word that normally is translated fall. Fall. She sees Isaac and she falls off the camel. Now, we don't really know for sure why she falls. Some commentators suggest she's overcome by nerves or excitement when she sees Isaac. It might be that Moses is describing here love at first sight. One commentator is usually very reliable and Pentateuch, his name is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he says this, he says, therefore when she saw Isaac, something about his demeanor or looks or whatever caused her to fall off the camel. Girls, can you relate to that? You've been planning, anticipating that moment, you're finally going to get a chance to talk to him and you fall down. <laughs> Hopefully you can't relate to that. She recovers and she veils her face and the story ends with a note here about Rebecca becoming his wife and this little note that Isaac loves her. 
mentioning of love in a Hebrew wedding story is not very common. This is no regular arranged marriage. It's a marriage arranged by God and ends with a husband loving his wife that God has provided for him. Not only is a wife secured, companionship is established and developed. As we close, we consider this story. I think it would be very easy for us to make a big deal out of the human examples in this story. To emphasize the greed of Laban. That'll preach. To emphasize the faith of Rebecca, The determination and worship of the unnamed servant. If there was a human character I'd really want to bring your attention to, it'd be the unnamed servant. Instead, I think the best focus for us today is to see that this text is emphasizing the true matchmaker in this story. The true matchmaker is not the servant, it's God. God provides what any man might want in a wife. Beautiful, considerate, hardworking, and willing. God, in the story, directs Abraham to send the servant. God directs the servant to the right well. God directs the right woman to the well at just the right time. And God directs Isaac to the field where he will meet his perfect match. As we consider this story, we might wrestle in our own lives with the interplay of human actions and divine initiatives. But a simple reading of Scripture, of multiple texts of Scripture, one text after another text after another text would help us to just very quickly see that it is God who is at work in all of the details of our human existence. And sometimes for us as well, the most vulnerable moments in all of our lives are where His sovereign guidance and direction of our lives will become the most clear to us. I pray that this story about God directing an unnamed servant to Rebecca in a vulnerable time for elderly Abraham will be an encouragement to you in your life story to trust God, to believe he's at work, and to know that he's the one always behind the scenes directing things for you and for your family. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask you all to stand as we close. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer before we're dismissed to Children's Church. We won't do our final song today because uh, I just preached from the longest text in Genesis. Let's close with a word of prayer and exalt in our sovereign God together before we leave. Before we pray, would you just briefly consider your own life story? Where are you at at this moment? Are you in a vulnerable moment? Are you in a vulnerable moment? Perhaps not knowing what to do, where to go. How to lead your family. How to serve your husband. How to be faithful at work. How to obey your parents how to use your life. In this vulnerable moment, I pray that you would be reassured with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That you would be reassured that he's always in control. He's in control of the events of our lives. He can provide for us. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time together. 
I pray that you would use Genesis 24 in our lives, in the life of our church. I pray that this week we might just be reminded of the fact that you are sovereign over us. You are with us in the fire and the flood. You are with us when the enemy intends things for our destruction. You turn those things to our good and to your glory. I pray, Father, that you would remind us of these things in our own trials and tests. May we trust you. May we know you're sovereign over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.